Hello, and welcome to Cross Point Church's podcast. We are here to reveal God in everyday ways that help people like you. Whether you are a Christian or not, we believe that God is not far from any one of us, and He wants to be found. You don't have to look a certain way or have it all together to become one of us. We don't have it all together either. But we do have hope in the one who does. Jesus loved everyone, no matter who they were or what they had done. We want to be just like that. If you want to connect with us, just stay after the message. We'll tell you how. Hi! How's everybody doing? Good. You feeling, are you feeling tired? Did you wake up this morning and you looked outside and you were like, no. No. You know what? A lot of people did and you didn't, so fantastic. And Matt, we will be joining you sledding. <coughs> we tried to build a snowman last night to no avail. Straight up powdery snow. Um, hi, uh, my name is Pastor Andrew. If you don't know me, uh, if you're new here, uh, one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, we're so glad that you're here this morning to learn about the word of the Lord as we are walking through Scripture together, part of this Gospel Project four-year plan that we've just in the last few weeks kind of dived back into after taking a break for the fall. Uh, so we're going to be doing that again. We're working through First Samuel right now. And uh, last week, Phil talked about the calling of Samuel that was in uh, First Samuel chapter 3, and of Samuel learning to hear the voice of the Lord when the Lord called him three different times, right? We learned that last week. The Lord said, Samuel. And he, Samuel went to his master, Eli, and said, you called me. No, it was, it was the Lord. So Samuel was learning to hear the voice of the Lord. And then last week was Sanctity of Life Sunday and Dedication Sunday, which was wonderful, was it not? Seeing six families with ten children being dedicated to the Lord Right? Which is amazing. We didn't like time that out, by the way, with 1 Samuel and like Samuel being dedicated to the Lord. Like that just happened. Isn't that great? I love when that happens. The Lord, right? Do I ever doubt him? So we talked about Phil kind of the tie in, like we want our children to learn to hear the voice of the Lord. That's, a, <laughs> that's my only goal as a parent. If I have if I do one thing right, it is that my children love and follow the Lord. So that's what we talked about last week. This week is a little less uh, exciting um, in terms of happy-go-lucky things, right? Because what if we don't follow the Lord? What what is the Lord's response when somebody follows the pure, evil desires of their own heart instead of the Lord's commands, right? title of the sermon, Following Their Own Desires. And today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 2 and 4. Uh, you, so you can turn your Bibles there and plant there. That's where we'll be the whole morning. And we're going to be looking at the story of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who are next in line to be high priests, but, who gone, whom, but through whom God demonstrated his demand for justice and judgment. Excited? Yeah? Fantastic. Okay. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to dive in. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for this sermon, that it would be honoring to you what you want, Lord, that your truths would be remembered and taken and applied to our lives, and that anything that's 
of me or things I think I'm very clever about would just be forgotten, Lord, or hopefully not even uttered. Um, so if we pray for your word to be magnified this morning in us. You know me, pray. Amen. Follow your heart. The heart wants what it wants. You do you. What, is, what does your heart tell you? Has anybody heard these before? This is the cry of our modern culture, right? Follow your heart. What you tell you is right, right? What you tell yourself. My friends, that is not what this book preaches, right? What does this book preach? Our hearts are like eternally wicked and deceitful beyond all else, right? Your heart cannot be trusted. Do not do you. Do not follow the desires of your heart, for they are evil, right? I know this about myself. I'm an evil person. If you knew my innermost thoughts and the, I give in to my selfishness all the time, right? My heart wants evil things. My old self before Christ. So our hearts are not to be trusted. We're going to be looking at how, how that looks when it's played out here in the story of Hophni and Phineas. The main point of this passage, and I love doing this up front. If you write down nothing else, this is the main point. The Lord, the holy and just judge, will have his vindication and justice over sin. Whether through the death and destruction of the perpetrator or through the death and destruction of his son. It's a bold statement, right? I'm going to read it again. The Lord, the holy and just judge, will have his vindication and justice over sin whether through the death and destruction of the perpetrator or through the death and destruction of his son. Okay. Ooh, man, that's big. Let's dive into it. So if you look at a few different passages in 1 Samuel 2 and 4, I want to point you to three key takeaways to the story of Hophni and Phinehas. All right? We're just going to dive right in. Takeaway number one. Hophni and Phinehas are contemptible to the Lord. That's a strong word, isn't it? They are contemptible. We're going to read... <clears throat> Here in 1 Samuel, you can uh, follow the screens or turn there if you want. We're in the English Standard Version, ESV. 1 Samuel, uh, was it 1? No, is it 1, 12, 3, 17? I think it's 2. Let's see here. Yeah, it's 2. That's wrong. Ignore that. It's 2, 12 through 17. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. (coughs) And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you want, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Let's skip it down to verse 22 through 25. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. 
and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such evil things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. <coughs> that was a lot, right? We're going to unpack it, don't worry. <coughs> I apologize for my cough. Ugh. Two ways that they transgressed or crossed over the Lord. Why were they contemptible? Why does that passage show that Hophni and Phinehas were contemptible before the Lord? One is pretty obvious that we read. If you were paying attention, I think one is not quite as obvious that we'll dive into. So the first way that they transgressed, which that word literally means crossed over, like they crossed over the commands of the Lord. They just like saw the commands there and they're like, thank you, no thank you, right? Transgressed the commands of the Lord. The first way is that they refused to follow the Lord's instructions on how sacrifices were to be treated and used after they had been offered. <coughs> so why would stabbing a fork and while the sacrifice was boiling or demanding the priest's portion of the meat before the fat had burned off be considered an insult to the Lord and to sin, right? Kind of, a, kind of an odd thing there. So by God's design, the priests and their families daily provisions of money and food depended largely on the tithes and sacrifices of the people, right? Just like in modern day, like pastors depend on the tithes and offerings of people. And that system was set up long ago, right, from the very beginning. <coughs> the law instructed that sacrifices to God require burning the animal along with the fatty portions. That phrase is very specifically used in that passage, right? The, the priest wanted the fatty portions, which were the best parts of the animal, the most desirable parts, and the parts that were reserved specifically for God. Hophni and Phinehas absolutely knew this, and yet would take by force, if necessary, you heard in there, the portions designated for the Lord. They treated his offerings and systems with contempt and dishonor. They were arrogant thieves who hindered the worship of God. So, first evidence of their wickedness is they knew exactly how God wanted them to handle those sacrifices as people were coming in to worship the Lord, to be forgiven of their sins. And they had contempt for that process. They wanted the best portions for themselves that the Lord had reserved for himself, right? So spitting in the face of God's commands. The second evidence of their wickedness was a little more obvious if you were reading along in that passage was the blatant sexual sin with which they engaged with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, right? So don't need to explain too much why this was a grievous sin. They were abusing their post. They took their power from their position and the need that the people had for the priests to help with their worship and sacrifice and therefore to be made right with God, and they were abusing that right, to a horrible degree. And I want to take a second and kind of take an aside here. Right? This is not the 
point of the passage, but it comes up in the text, and I want to address it. So, they were called to care for the people, and instead they abused and betrayed them. Instead of selflessly carrying out God's will for his people, guiding them in worship and relationship with him, they were only out for themselves, following the sinful and evil desires of their own hearts. As it was in the day of Hophni and Phinehas. Spiritual abuse is very active and alive in the church today. While there are certainly many kinds of abuse that devastate people's lives, spiritual abuse is a unique way in which someone's very relationship with God can be uprooted and shaken. So don't hear that I'm setting aside other kinds of abuse. My wife and I are currently walking through uh, two women who are going through abuse in their marriage, right? It's very real to us. And many of you have experienced that kind of abuse. What this passage is referring to specifically, what I want to say here real fast, is this idea of spiritual abuse from the leader or overseer that is supposed to be assigned by God to protect and guide you and shepherd you. In his book, Bully Pulpit, Reformed Theological Seminary President Michael J. Kruger says it like this. The term spiritual abuse rightly highlights the core reason that this abuse is so devastating to Christians. Namely because it was perpetrated by the very pastor or elder or elder board who was supposed to protect them. It is that dynamic that then leads to disillusionment and distrust of the church and perhaps Christianity as a whole. I don't know your story. Like even the ones of you that I've gotten to know well in the last six months, I don't know your entire history with church, where you've come from. But I do know that spiritual abuse is prevalent in the church today. There are stories dropping all over the place where we see this, right? In bigger churches sometimes, but it happens in smaller churches just as much, right? And if that's your story, if you come from that, like on behalf of the church, I want to apologize to you that you went through that. That a servant of the Lord made you feel anything less than loved by him and cherished by him, right? And shepherded by him and led you in worship and in the word to the Lord. And that's not how it's supposed to be. So I'm so thankful that you're like listening online, that you're here in person. That means that you've not completely rejected the church or Christianity. Maybe you are fully embracing it still. Maybe you're unsure about it. Maybe that's part of your recent past. And if so, I would love to talk to you about that, okay? Because that is not how caretakers, under shepherds of the Lord, are supposed to act. Okay, and that's what we see here in Hophni and Phinehas, in their contemptible treatment of the Lord and his law. All right, number two, point number two. Takeaway number two. Hophni and Phinehas are rejected by the Lord. All right, back to Scripture here. 1 Samuel 2, that is accurate, I believe, 229 through 34. <clears throat> so this passage starts in 27, and a man of God came to Eli. We, do, we have no idea who that is. A man of God came. And then to verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons? Above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise 
that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Whew. A lot there too. Eli knew what was happening. He knew what his sons were doing. It was, was no surprise to him, right? As any good parent, we always know what our children are doing, right? When the mom doing dishes and the kids in the playroom, mom says, stop doing that. How did she know? eyes in the back of her head, right? Because parents know it was not beyond Eli's grasp and vision of what his sons were doing. In fact, it says also in the passage there, at a different, uh, different place, that he tried to talk to his sons and said, you need to stop this, right, that we read earlier. And they did not heed or did not listen. But when they did not stop, and he was unsuccessful in his attempts, he failed to reject them as priests. And that is Eli's role in this, that he failed to remove them from their post because they were next in line to be the high priests, right? The direct intercessors between God and the people. <coughs> so at the camp I used to work at, uh, we did a lot of outdoor activities for kids. Right? That's actually primarily what we did. So we teach them like skills outside or like do adventurous activities with them. And one of my favorite ones was called Hunt, Cook, Eat. So in the morning, we'd split them into three groups, teach one group how to work a little GPS thing, teach one group uh, how to read a topography map, and then we teach one group how to start a fire with foot and steel. Has anybody ever started a fire with foot and steel? Yes. Not an easy process, is it? Especially for a fifth grader. Yeah, let me tell you something. So then we'd have lunch, and then in the afternoon, we'd say, you need to split yourselves into three groups. We recommend having, you know, at least somebody in your group that was all, all three of these classes. And then we have hidden your dinner in coolers in our 300-acre property. And here are the list of six coordinates for each group that you can type in your GPS. Like, your job is to go find your dinner, and that's what we're doing this afternoon. Fan, all your parents are like, yes, that's fantastic. So it was. So we as a guide would go with one of the groups, and we were not there to help them. We were to make sure they didn't die. That was our only role, right? And we would tell parents, like, you are welcome to come with us. It's designed to take about three or four hours if they work well together, right? Which very few of them did. And we had groups pretty regularly. We'd be out there till 10 or midnight, right? Which is a that is a great thing for a child to be hungry and trying to work together as a team, right? So I'd bring, my, I'd bring my dinner in my backpack. I'd be munching on my peanut butter jelly sandwich while they're fighting amongst themselves, right? So I tell parents, right, you don't have to go with us. Here's where our final campsite is. You're welcome to like, go to your cabin, take a nap, meet us there. This isn't for you. If you do come with us, right, I want you to hang in the back with me, observe what's going on, 
And then every once in a while, we'll stop and facilitate, help them team build, right? But do, and you can like talk to your kids, but do not help them, right? Do not talk about this. So one group. You, have you got the setup? You get the picture? Yeah. So one group, oh man, going on hunt cookie. We're in like hour seven, hour eight. It's like eight, nine o'clock at night. They are like not working together as a team at all. Right, so if they're making efforts and they're like trying and just can't get it, I might step in and help a little bit later. But this group like doesn't even want to try, like not working as a team. So a couple hours before, uh, one of the moms said, "I like I can't do this anymore. Like I, I can't believe you're just letting them walk around." And I'm like, "Yep, it's gonna be okay. Like it's okay for them to be hungry and to eat late to learn this lesson." So she's like, "I'm gonna go back to, to my cabin." I was like, "Okay, it's great." So come nine or ten o'clock, and we don't and we take their phones from them too. Right, they're not allowed to have their phones, obviously. So then, uh, like in the middle of the woods, and all of a sudden, I start smelling like taco meat. I'm like, what is happening at this moment? And then I hear crinkles, and I see, shine my light and see up ahead, there is Taco Bell being passed down the line to these kids. And I was like, what is happening right now, right? So this mom had had enough, drove 20 minutes away to town, bought like 50 tacos, found us somehow, which means one kid had their phone, and started passing out these tacos because she could not save for her daughter to be hungry. Unbelievable, right? (laughs) And the crowd says together. That child is going to grow up to fail at life because their parent, that's called a helicopter parent, if you didn't know. Their parent is going to bail them out. And they're going to grow up thinking that the rules don't apply to them. Right? Like, we don't need to follow the rules. We're gonna get dinner when we want to. We're gonna have our phone on us, we're gonna keep that, right? This is what Eli did with Hophni and Phineas. He, he might have talked to him, might have been better than this parent a little bit, but ultimately he did not remove them from priesthood, so there were no consequences for them. And they learned that the rules didn't apply to them. But judgment was coming. Eli knew, therefore, he was a direct accomplice in his son's action, actions, which severely detracted people in their worship of the Lord. Therefore, punishment not just for Hophni and Phinehas, but for the entire priestly line of Eli was coming. No longer would Eli's family have the incredible privilege of priesthood, but it would, it would pass to another in the lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And the punishment would not stop there, but would involve the painful consequence of Eli losing his two sons on the same day to death. Not only this, my voice can't really go any higher, but no longer would any of Eli's descendants reach old age, but death by violence would be the curse upon his family for their cavalier attitude toward the holiness of God. Who made just... I said, I don't even have this written. It's just coming to me now as a, an aside for parents. How important is it, is it to us to lead our children in the truths and ways of the Lord? Very. The answer is very important. Oh, man, that makes me think. This passage is full of despair and judgment. It is the reminder that God's commands and statutes are to be held in the highest regard in the minds and hearts of all those who would call on and use his name. He will surely bring judgment and justice to sin. 
especially obvious and unrepentant sin. And yet, in the midst of this, we see God doing a new thing in the very next verse. Verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build them a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. <coughs> God offers a foreshadowing of hope to be found in the promise of a faithful priest in the future, which would not come until the time of King Solomon. Not only in Samuel, <coughs> who is going to be next, but then in the great ultimate and final high priest of Jesus Christ. This is a double foreshadowing the Lord offers that in the midst of the judgment and tragedy, there is hope. The, both the immediate hope of a better line, a better lineage of priests, than the ultimate high priest Jesus who it points to. So finally, our last takeaway from this, we see that Hophni and Phineas are judged by the Lord. Ooh. 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought there from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. <laughs> as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And then here it is. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died. Whew, there's a lot in like each one of these passages, man. So much. The Lord brought to fruition that which he had spoken. On the same day, in the same battle, Hophni and Phinehas were killed. And as he often did in the Old Testament, God used a pagan nation in this case, Israel's bitter enemy, the Philistines, to carry out his justice. Another primary and 
tragic takeaway from this particular passage in 1 Samuel 4 right there about these battles. The sins of Hophni and Phinehas brought the entire nation of Israel down with them. Because of their sinful leadership and wickedness in the worship of the Lord, the Lord removed his good favor from Israel and instead gave it to the Philistines. How did their sin permeate and deteriorate the Israelites? What choice did the Israelites make that reflected that sinful leadership? It's in verse 3 here, right? And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, <coughs> Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemy. Sin of Eli's sons led to a defeat and then to a disaster. The Israelites sought a symbol of the Lord instead of seeking the Lord himself. After tasting defeat from the Philistines in the previous few verses, they knew that the Lord was responsible for the defeat. Yet they didn't connect the reality that the sins of Hophni and Phinehas were the cause of this. And they didn't seek the Lord himself in prayer they sought a symbol, really an idol. In the, uh, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant. It will save us. <coughs> they sought his Ark of the Covenant as little more than a good luck charm. As if to ensure their defeat and failure of this plan, right? Just icing on the cake. Who is accompanying the Ark of the Covenant? Hophni and Phinehas, right? It's like you couldn't script it better. That this is going to totally fail. See, for the Philistines, the ark clearly functioned like an idol, right? It was a mobile representation of the power of the God of Israel. That is what the Philistines thought when they saw the ark. Very sadly, it functioned for the Israelites in the exact same way. In this battle, God vindicated himself in two ways. First, he proved that he will not be a pawn used to advance the purposes of self-absorbed people. God is not a good luck charm, right? The only time you ever pray to God is before that test or before this thing or before that thing, right? He is not a good luck charm to be bestowed upon your life to bring blessing. Unless Israel heeded his word and walked in his ways, he would not fight for them. Second, God proved he will judge sin, keeping his word to put the death of the two sons of Eli, keeping to put to death, the two sons of Eli. God will not turn a blind eye to sin because he is holy and sin is deadly. So people must turn to him to be saved. Oh, man, that was just like a fire hose, right? That was, that was a ton of stuff. I want to go back to the main point here. We're going to kind of wrap it up with some application about how this applies to the gospel and how it applies to our lives. So kind of back to the main point, the Lord, the holy and just judge, will have his vindication and justice over sin, whether through the death and destruction of the perpetrator or through the death and destruction of his son. Faithlessness, corruption, following our own desires leads directly to death. Sin must be punished and face judgment. 
God, as the ultimate just judge, he cannot sweep sin aside and forgive without payment, or else he would not be just. Furthermore, we don't want him to do that. We are not perfect judges, but we do have a sense of justice, right? When you see injustice in the world, is your instinct to say, let him off. Let's be gracious. Let's have grace for that murderer. Sweep it under the rug. No. We want punishment. We want the scales of justice to be made right. We have this sense within us already (coughs) because we are a reflection and image of him. Romans 6.23 teaches us that the payment for sin is death, from which there is no recovery, right? There is no us defeating death. We don't have that power. So if you're new to this church or haven't been here for a while, or I guess that's the definition of new, haven't been here for a while. So. We are a gospel-centered church. And a lot of churches might say that, and I don't mean to say at all that other churches don't point to the gospel like we will have it laced in everything we do. Right? The gospel will be pervasive in our lives. It will be prevalent among everything. So every sermon we do, and the point, like the gospel project, this curriculum we're walking through, is right. how does this point us back to the gospel, right? to the work, actions, and person of Jesus Christ? And some passages in the Old Testament, right, none of them are hard if you look at them to tie back, but some of them just kind of lay it on a silver platter, like, oh, here's the story, here's the gospel, boom. It's like one of the same. This is one of those stories, right? Sin deserves punishment, right? And in the Old Testament system, it was the sacrifice of an animal to be punished, right? So I have here a lamb. Just kidding. Whoa. Just kidding. <laughs> but it was placed on the altar, right? You would bring your animal. Right? And there were specifications about what that could be and couldn't be. But the two things that it had to be were costly. It had to be your best animal, the most spotless lamb, right? Had to be costly and it had to be innocent. It didn't do anything, did it? It was just an animal. And yet we are going to murder it as a substitution for your sins, right? To make your relationship right with God. And as other stories in the Old Testament attest, it's actually not even this act of sacrifice that makes your relationship right. This is being obedient to what the Lord has said. It is your heart that you are coming at this with, right? The Lord says in Psalm 50, like, do I need the blood of goats? Do I need the meat of bulls? No. You're not doing this for me. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Like, what do I need from you? Nothing. I want your heart and your attitude of thanksgiving and praise. That is what I desire as a sacrifice. So we have this Old Testament system of animal sacrifice that God wanted the heart, right? As the substitution for sins. Let's see if I can get up here. And then it all led back to the New Testament. Even this old system was pointing directly towards Christ. The ultimate, the final, costly, and innocent sacrifice for our sins. 
No longer do we have to count daily. Did you know they did this twice a day and then more sometimes throughout the year? No longer did this system have to be in effect. No longer did an actual animal be the substitute for our sin and take the punishment of death. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for that. He was the Son of God given for you. So remember, in communion, we remember the blood that he spilled for you, the body that was broken for you. That in that moment, on that cross, God's demand for satisfaction of justice and judgment was met for all of human history, for all of time. It was met in Christ on the cross. That no longer do you have to taste death. We will taste death in this physical form, but it will not be as a punishment for our sins. That is covered and we will get to raise a new life with Christ. Again, I don't know where you're at at your spiritual journey. As I look across this room, there are like faces I don't recognize in here, which is great. I want to meet more of you, right? New people coming all the time. I don't know where you are, but I know that you need Jesus. I know that that is at the central of everything we do. The gospel is not so, <laughs> the gospel is not like the easy theology that like, oh, be led to Christ with the gospel, and then we'll like move to like the deeper stuff, right? Which we did. We covered a lot of like in-depth meat today of like 1 Samuel, right? And underlying it all at the foundation is the gospel. Because without that, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Right? So a fun sermon. God's going to get you. Pretty much, right? God's going to get his judgment on sin. And it's either going to be through the death and destruction of you, or it's going to be through the death and destruction of his son. And he already did that. And all you have to do is believe and follow. You can be saved. You believe and follow the judgment that God poured out on his son. And then Jesus raised to life to conquer the grave, right? So we don't have to taste death, that kind of death anymore. Okay. Talk about questions. I want... You learn so much more when you discuss it instead of just hearing it as a little lecture, right? So I highly challenge you to write these down, remember them. Talk about these with your whoever, with your loved ones, your friends, your spouse, your family. (coughs) Get vulnerable, get deep. In your own mind and heart, how do you view or treat the commands and statutes of Jesus? Are they malleable or flexible in your life? Or are they resolute? Are they holy? Are they up for discussion? Right? The things you read, especially the words of Christ in the New Testament? Or are these, these are factual. I want to do my very best to follow them, right? And just so you know, right, to be very clear, there's a big difference between um, falling into sin. Right? My, my old self comes out sometimes. I, you know, there's going to be a struggle the rest of my life. And the willful disobedience and spitting in the face of the commands of the Lord. We're talking, about, we're talking about this one, right? Is there a thing that says in Scripture, you're like, yeah, I'm just not going to follow that. Like, I, I just think that's dumb. Challenge your own heart, right? Do you, do you see anything like that in your own heart? And the second one, do you trust your own heart to tell you what is good, right, and true? <laughs> the answer should be no, you do not. Or do you trust the words of your Savior? 
Whose words are you listening to to guide your heart, to tell you what is true? You don't do you, you do Christ. Let's make some bracelets about that and spread it around, right? And Cal challenge you to take these home, talk about these, flush it out from this sermon and this passage that we looked at. And I pray that it brings us closer to Christ. I know the band back up while I'm praying. We'll close out with the song here. Father, I, oh, man, Lord, never let me be as Hophni and Phinehas. Never let any of us view your command, your holy statutes that you gave us in this book, the right ways to live life and follow you. <coughs> let us never treat those as anything less than the ideal, the standard that we are reaching for, Lord. Lord, I'm going to be a sinner in this life. Though I'm redeemed by the blood of your Son, I will fail. But Lord, never let me get comfortable in my failures. Never let me be comfortable with sin. That I'm always striving after your heart and what you want, Father. And I, Lord, I, I am struck by this passage and Eli's lack of taking the right course of action with his sons to remove them from priesthood. Lord, let me always remove my children from priesthood. If they live in rebellion and they are not following you, let me be the kind of parent that you want me to be, not shying away from, from implementing those statutes to my children and raising them in you purely and holy. <clears throat> we love you, Father. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were encouraged, and we'd like to personally invite you to attend one of our services here at Cross Point Church. We meet every Sunday at 11,000 West Oklahoma Avenue in the great city of West Dallas. Our people are warm and welcoming, and we're all learning what it means to follow Jesus together. You can learn more about us at crosspointwestdallas.com, where you'll find more episodes of our podcast. You can watch past services on our YouTube channel, and we live stream every Sunday at 10 a.m. Until then, thank you for listening to Crosspoint Church.